You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from David Whistle. Well, good morning. It's really good to see everyone's faces. <laughs> After two Sundays of sitting in an empty room, it's such a joy to see everyone. Um, so, yeah, if you're new with us today, um, we're, like I said, we're continuing with our study of First and Second Samuel this morning. And I'm just, I'm really excited to open up God's Word in an amazing passage of Scripture and just see what it has to say for us. So, a couple of years ago, I got the chance to check out the Bible Museum down in D.C., and one of my favorite exhibits at the Bible Museum is one called The Bible Now. It's this room with these giant wall-to-wall screens where you can look up every country's favorite verses on the YouVersion Bible app. And so a lot of it's what you expect. A ton of countries have John 3.16, Philippians 4.13, Jeremiah 29.11 as some of their favorites. And some of it's kind of funny. Like, a couple of France's favorite verses were John 6.35, where Jesus says he's the bread of life. Or Deuteronomy 8.3, where Moses says man shall not live by bread alone. So, I guess the French, they just really love baguettes, and they want to see what the Bible has to say about it. <laughs> Asking the big questions. And so it made me wonder, if ancient Israel or the New Testament authors, if they had the version Bible app, and we could track their favorite verses... What would they be? What passages of Scripture would Peter or Paul or John look to most often for encouragement? Well, even though they didn't have the Bible app, we can look at the Bible itself and see what passages of Scripture are most often quoted, referenced, or alluded to. And based on that, we can safely say our passage for today, 2 Samuel 7, would have been one of the most beloved verses in ancient Israel. 2 Samuel 7 is directly referenced later on in 2 Samuel, but also in 1 and 2 Chronicles, 1 Kings, all over the Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. It's also alluded to more indirectly in many places in the Old Testament. And when we come to the New Testament, 2 Samuel 7 is directly referenced in Matthew and Hebrews and Romans and Revelation. And if you remember for Advent two months ago, we did a short series on Luke chapters 1 and 2. And some scholars have pointed out that really one of the main themes of those two super long chapters is just to demonstrate how Jesus fulfills 2 Samuel 7. So if you're an ancient Israelite, 2 Samuel 7 is like your John 3.16. It's the verse you have on your coffee mug, or it's the verse you put on your cute little uh, custom art piece from Etsy. It's a passage of scripture you go to for hope in difficult times. Or if you want to summarize the content of your faith in a concise way. So, what is 2 Samuel 7 even about then? God's covenant with David. Specifically, God promises that through King David's line, he's going to establish a lasting kingdom in Israel, and through that, bring eternal salvation to the nations. But okay, covenant is a word we use a lot in church settings. And the longer you're around RCC, the more you might notice that we love the word covenant. We're covenanting together as a covenant church family to covenant around our covenant membership covenant. And 
We love covenants because they're one of the major themes of the Bible, and it's a really big part of what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. But okay, maybe you're here today, you're listening online, and if you're honest, you have no freaking clue what a covenant is, let alone how it's relevant to your life in any way. And that's you, it's a, it's a good day to be at church. A bit later, we're going we're gonna to unpack what a covenant is and what it means for us. But for now, I'll just share the main point of today's sermon, which is this. God's steadfast love for his covenant people does not depend on their performance for him. So if you're in Christ today under the new covenant in his blood, God's pleasure in you is not based on your performance for him. So if you get nothing else from my sermon today, I want you to walk out of here today believing that's actually true. So in our text for today, we're going to unpack two aspects of the covenant and then one implication of the covenant. And that's the first thing, because nothing is more precious than God's presence and nothing is more powerful than God's promises, then nothing is a greater privilege than prayer. So last week we looked at 2 Samuel 6 where David brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and established Jerusalem as the religious and political capital of Israel. And 2 Samuel 7 picks up, most likely several years after that, with King David relaxing in the new palace he just built. And after 20 years of fighting, verse 1 says that the Lord had finally given David rest from his enemies. So David spent 20 years, basically being one misstep away from certain death. 20 years of dodging spears and sleeping in caves. He's witnessed the deaths of many innocent people, including some family members, and the death of his best friend. But now all this is done. The Lord has given him rest from his enemies. He's established him as the uncontested king over the United Kingdom of Israel. He's in his new city, in his brand new palace. So picture David kicking up his feet on his proverbial lazy boy recliner. <sighs> Takes a deep breath. The struggle's over. He can finally rest now. Then all of a sudden, something bugs him. There's this feeling he can't shake, this itch he can't scratch. So he calls for Nathan the prophet. And this is the first time Nathan's introduced in the story. Nathan functions for David like Samuel did for Saul, as a trusted spiritual advisor and confidant. So if David were the president of the United States, Nathan would be like the pastor to the president. And here's what David says to Nathan in verse 2. See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. He's saying, how's it okay that I'm posted up in a brand new palace, but the ark of the covenant is contained the special presence of God. It's like sitting in my backyard in a tent. And so, so like a good ministry fundraiser, what does Pastor Nathan say when a rich guy says he wants to fund a new church building project? Verse 2, go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But of course, the temple in the Old Testament is not quite the same as a, a church building today. Even though God is present everywhere, in the Ark of the Covenant or in the temple, God is present in a special way. And David wants to experience God in this way. And he wants to build a temple so God can come and dwell with his people. And David's posture towards God in this story demonstrates an absolutely vital truth for us, which is our first point, that there's nothing more precious than the presence of God. And David's thought process isn't clearly spelled out here, but we can look at Psalm 132, which itself looks back on 2 Samuel 7, and it tells us what David was thinking. It says, 
Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. So this reveals that beneath all David's godly ambition and all the good things David accomplishes for the kingdom of God, he's really had one basic goal all along. He's got a one-track mind. His spiritual to-do list has just one basic agenda item. He says it like this in Psalm 27. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So David wants to dwell in the Lord's presence in his temple. And why does David desire the presence of God so much? Well, in Psalm 1611, he says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. David knows that the presence of God is more valuable than anything the world has to offer. He knows that everything that's true, that's good, that's beautiful about life finds its fullness in the presence of God. He knows that we were made to live in the presence of God, that we become truly human in the presence of God. So the prayer of David's life is this. God, at the end of the day, I really just want one thing from you. There's nothing more that I ask of you than to dwell in your presence, to gaze upon your beauty, and to have fullness of joy in you. My soul thirsts for you. I need to experience your love and grace more than I need to sleep. I just want to be with you, God. And I don't want to just know about you, but I also want to know you personally. And do you thirst for the felt presence of God like David does? Do any of your prayers or your innermost desires sound like David's at all? And if you don't desire God much, it may, may be because you haven't asked him for that desire. And that's you. Later today, pray that God would increase your desire for him more and more. I mean, even David, the man after God's own heart, still had to ask God to dwell in his presence in Psalm 27. And he desired God because he wanted to desire God. So he asked to desire God. And sometimes we'll have to ask God for that too. So that same night, God loses no time correcting Nathan and David's honest and good but mistaken conclusions about the temple. Verse 4, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Nathan before had just spoken as a human advisor, but now God's giving him an authoritative prophetic word for David. Verse 5 says, God says, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. This is a beautiful picture of the redeeming condescension of God. The Lord himself has condescended to be present with his people. He says he brought them out of slavery in Egypt, and he says that he's been personally moving around with his people as a journey towards the promised land. But notice with me, God says in, to David in verse 5, Would you build me a house? 1 Chronicles 28.3 gives us a little more clarity on what God means here. David recounts this interaction with God and says this, God told me, God told him, uh, You may not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war and have shed blood. So God's not rejecting David as a person, but he is rejecting his idea. David shed a lot of blood. And even though these were legitimate conflicts in the eyes of God, 
it still wouldn't be appropriate for a man of war to build a temple for the God of peace. Okay, so then the passage zooms in next on God's relationship with David as an individual. He says to David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the great ones of the earth. So God's essentially saying here, David, since you desire my presence, I need you to know that I'm actually already nearer to you than you can even realize. You need to know that I've always been with you, whether you realize it or not, this whole time. I've been sovereignly working behind the scenes for your ultimate good. I was with you when you were a 16-year-old shepherd boy, and I'm still with you even as a 40-something king. I brought you this far, and I'm certainly not finished yet. You know, one time when I was a brand new Christian, a brother who was discipling me, discipling me, he asked me how I was doing in my walk with Jesus. And I said to him, not good at all. I feel like God is just so far away from me right now. I just can't shake this feeling that... And then he cuts me off in sentence. He was polite but very intense. He said to me, David, you know, it frankly doesn't matter if you feel like God is far from you, away from you. The truth is that regardless of what you may feel, God's closer to you than you can even imagine. And he's right. Our feelings don't change the reality of God's presence with us. And I think there's a danger of over-spiritualizing the presence of God, of operating more based on feelings than truth. So I want to give us two quick practical frameworks for seeking God's presence. First, continually remind yourself that God is present with you always. The good news is that the universal, actual presence of God does not depend on our feelings. For believers, there are seasons where God seems to withdraw our sense of his presence with us. And he always does this for a good purpose. And in these times, it's really important to take intentional time each day to turn your thoughts to God and acknowledge his presence with you, whatever you're doing. And the second thing is, we need to seek God's presence in ways that are informed by his word. To seek a God who's essentially the sum total of our personal preferences, our feelings, our experiences, and our opinions is idolatry. We're to seek the presence of God who has revealed himself to us perfectly in Scripture. So we need to know the God who has revealed himself in Scripture. So, after God reminds David of how he's redeemed his people and how he's been present with them, God continues his long speech and makes some really staggering promises to David about what he's going to do next. And that's our second point, that nothing is more powerful than God's promises. So look at me at the second half of verse 11. God says to David, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. David told God earlier, essentially, I want to experience your presence, so I'm going to make you a house. And then God basically says in response, it's really nice, David, but I've actually been present with you all along. And instead of you building me a house, I'm going to build you a house. God has a little fun with the wordplay here. The word for house in Hebrew can mean a literal physical structure, and it can also mean a dynasty, a royal line. And God continues, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. 
But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So, the passage I just read is called the Davidic Covenant. And true to my promise, we're going to sort out what the heck a covenant even is. So, here's my definition. So, a covenant is a formal partnership between two parties in which promises are made and mutual obligations are listed out. And it's important to know that covenants are not contracts, but commitments. Relationships at the very heart of what a covenant is. I think an example of this we might be, might be more familiar with is marriage. Marriage is a covenant involving both loving relationship and solemn commitment. Marriage is a relationship based on mutual love and friendship. You get married because you're in love. But it's also a formal commitment with solemn promises and obligations from both parties involved in the marriage. You stay married even at times where you don't feel much love. And interestingly enough, you actually won't, if you look through 2 Samuel 7, you won't find the word, the actual word covenant anywhere. But covenant language is everywhere. And almost every single time 2 Samuel 7 is quoted or referred to in the rest of the Old Testament, the word covenant is used. But okay, let's take, let's take, a, like, let's take a look at how God will fulfill his covenant promise to David under three headings. So first, there's a more immediate fulfillment of the covenant promises to David. So the covenant promises David, God makes it uh, here, find their immediate fulfillment in King Solomon, David's biological son. As verse 12 says, Solomon is David's literal offspring who came from his body and will succeed David as the king of Israel. Later on in the biblical story, too, in uh, 1 Kings 5-8, through Solomon actually will build the temple, the house for God's name, as verse 13 says. And God also promises that he's going to continue to raise up kings from the line of David. The first king of Israel, Saul, he died without an heir, but God says David will not only have an heir, but he's going to have a lasting dynasty. And we see from the story of Scripture that, that this does happen. And even when individual kings from David's uh, line fall into sin, as, as Solomon will do, for example, God says he's not going to remove covenant kingship from the house of David like he did from the house of Saul. God says in verse 14 that instead, he'll put the line of David under his fatherly discipline when they sin, but he's not going to abandon his covenant with the line of David as a whole. But okay, that's, that's the immediate fulfillment of God's covenant with David. And that's really nice for David, right? But what does that do for anyone else? And that brings us to our second heading, which is where the covenant with David fits into the Bible's larger story. So... In Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God created humanity to live in his presence and to partner with him to reign over creation. But Adam disobeyed God, and as our representative, what Adam did counts for us. But we inherit his guilt. And so from the fall of humanity in Genesis 3 onward, all human beings are born spiritually dead as offspring of Adam. But as the story of the Bible progresses, we see that God selects individuals out of the fallen mass of humanity, like Abraham or Moses or David, to be his covenant partners for the ultimate purpose of bringing sal- blessing and salvation to the rest of fallen humanity. And so when God makes his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15 and 17, he does so with the ultimate intention of blessing the nations of the world through Abraham's offspring, the nation of Israel. And when God rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt and gives them the law and makes a covenant with them through Moses, he does this so that the glory of God might be reflected out to the surrounding nations. 
So in the Old Testament, Israel's special status as a people of God is actually not an end in itself. It's a means to an end, which is namely the establishment of God's saving purposes for the world at large. And that's why the church, as the international, multi-ethnic, new covenant family of God, fulfills these promises to Israel made to Abraham, Moses, and David. So then when we come to this covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, it's really just continuing the trajectory of the covenants with Abraham and Moses. In the Davidic covenant, God throws these promises to Abraham and Moses into a blender, and then he adds a new element in the mix. The brand new element God is revealing to David here is that his royal line will be established forever. And that God is going to bring salvation for the nations, not just through Israel, but through David's direct lineage in particular. Which brings us to our last heading, the greater fulfillment of the covenant promises to David. So, a covenant involves a formal commitment two parties make to each other. And in the story of the Bible, over and over again, we see one of the two parties in the covenant failing in their commitments. So does anyone remember doing group projects in high school or in college, maybe even now if you're a student? The cursed, dreaded group projects. And remember how there was always that, that person in your group project. The person who you saw looking at their phone all semester in class and not paying attention. And of course, that was a person who always seemed to get put in your group project, right? And like, you don't want to fail, so you pretty much have to put the team on your back and do all the work. Well, the whole story of scripture reveals that Abraham, Moses, and David are that guy who is looking at his phone all semester in class. Abraham, Moses, David, Israel, and really, humanity as a whole, fail as God's covenant partners. We've all collectively tanked the cosmic group project. But God always, always keeps his covenant promises. So a key word in 2 Samuel 7 for understanding covenants, and really for understanding the theology of the Old Testament as a whole, is in verse 15, steadfast love. In Hebrew, it's actually one word, has said. And steadfast love, or has said, means that love that is not based on covenant is based on covenant promises and not covenant performance. So that's why God says in Jeremiah 33, "If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken." God is saying that as sure as we can be that the sun will rise in the morning and that the moon will continue to orbit the earth, that's as sure as we can be that God will keep his covenant promises that he made with David in this chapter. And even though that's true, there are some later times of exile in Israel's history where it didn't seem like the covenant promises of God were going to work out. Psalm 89, which is written during a time of exile, laments the seeming unfaithfulness of God, saying, For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of the grave? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? So if you're an ancient Israelite, living after the time of David, during times of exile, this might have been how you would have felt. Like, you know God made all these amazing promises about steadfast love, salvation, and blessing through his covenant with David. But at least from your perspective, it sure seems like business as usual. Life is vanity, death certain, and the power of the grave is absolute. So based on the circumstances, it seems to be the case that God has forgotten about his promises to his people. 
And you'd be thinking, like, is that true, God? Have you really forgotten about your promises to Abraham and David? Well, the very first verse of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, gives us the answer to those questions. Jesus Christ is described here as the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Matthew's readers would have understood that this means that Jesus is a yes and amen, the fulfillment of all the covenant promises that God made to Abraham and to David. Jesus is the royal offspring of David who came to announce an eternal kingdom that will bring salvation to the nations in fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. And as the Messiah, as the anointed king, Jesus came to bring salvation for all who would trust in him as king and judgment on all who would rebel against his rule. And King Jesus also came to inaugurate a new covenant since humans had failed as God's covenant partners. But this time around, God himself would be his own covenant partner. He would keep the terms of the covenant for both parties. So God told David about how he condescended with his people in the tabernacle as he saved them from slavery in Egypt and wandered with them in the wilderness. John chapter 1 says that Jesus is the word made flesh, God incarnate, who dwelt, or literally in the Greek, tabernacled among us. So Jesus came down from heaven to keep the terms of the covenant on behalf of you and me. And his obedience is credited to us when we repent and believe in him. But he did more than that. God said that David could not build him a temple because his hands had shed too much blood to become king. But the only truly innocent person without any blood in his hands became king by shedding his blood. And the blood of Jesus Christ, the son of David, would inaugurate the new covenant which promises forgiveness of sins by sheer grace. And God promised that his covenant with David would stand as long as the sun stood in the sky and gave its light. But there came a day where the daytime sky would be filled with utter darkness. It was the day when the father turned his face away from his son so that the covenant-breaking people of God, who deserved to be cast out from the presence of God, could be welcomed back into his fatherly embrace. Now when David hears all these amazing promises... All he can do is just sit in silence before the Lord, as we see in verse 18. Then David breaks forth in a beautiful prayer of awe and trust and submission. And it's from this last part of the passage we learn that nothing is a greater privilege than prayer, which is our third point. So I think it's safe to say that most Christians, even if we love Jesus, we struggle with prayer sometimes. Like, even if you have a pretty decent prayer life, there's still some days where prayer is a spiritual battle, isn't it? At least it is for me. And if that's you, then David's prayer, I think, is going to be very helpful for you. Now, the surprising thing about David's prayer, or about what David says about himself in his prayer, is how little he says about himself at all. David's the king of Israel, but the only word he uses to describe himself in his prayer over and over again is servant. And in verses 23 and 24, we see that even though David's king, he sees himself as really just another one of God's people. God has made David a shepherd of his people, but David hasn't forgotten that he's a sheep too. And David starts out with all these big plans for God's kingdom. He's going to build him a magnificent temple for his name. And David was really excited about his plans for the kingdom, but then he finds out what God has promised for his kingdom. And when David hears that, he forgets about his plans. He forgets about his problems. Focuses on God. David over and over again uses the covenant names of God, Adonai, Elohim, Yahweh, 
And he invokes the name of God about 16 different times in just nine verses. And the names of God in the Bible are not like mere semantics. The name of God is closely related to the character of God. David's repetition of these names implies that he is in intimate relationship with the Lord and a deep knowledge of his character. He knows who God is, and he loves him. So David knows God, and he knows nothing compares with them. So he says in verse 22, You are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And David also knows that God is truthful, that he can be taken at his word. He knows that God is faithful to his promise, that when God promises something, it's as good as done. So he says in verse 28, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. And finally, David knows that God is jealous for his own glory. He knows that God will fulfill his promises to his people for the glory of his name. So it says in verse 26 that the name of the Lord will be magnified forever. And I think David's prayer gives us the solution to one of our major problems with prayer. You see, so much of our struggle with prayer comes from our inordinate focus on our plans, our problems, ourselves. But David's prayer focuses on God's plans, God's promises, and God. And so, when you look at this prayer, most of the real estate in the prayer is taken up by God's promises. David has taken a hold of God's gracious covenant promises and implanted them deep within his soul. God's grace has taken his eyes off himself and put his eyes on God's steadfast covenant love. So based on that, I want to give us three ways that we can take a hold of the promises of God like David. The first is that we need to know the promises of God. David's well-versed in God's covenant promises, and he pretty much just repeats them back to God in his prayer. He knows them like the back of his hand. And okay, this point sounds obvious, but it's actually not. We get ourselves into trouble here all the time. We don't know what God's promised, so we put God on the hook for things he's never promised us. Like we either assume God has promised us certain things because we feel like he should give us certain things, or we just rip scripture out of his context to tell ourselves things that it's not saying. Like we read a passage like Romans 8.28 where it says, all things work together for good. And we read it as like a generic platitude. There's a silver lining. Everything is going to work out in the end. That's not what it says. We forget the part where it says, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. In other words, the promise that all things are working together for good is only for Christians and not for everyone in general. And then we also don't read the next verse where it says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So that means the ultimate good for which all things are being worked together sovereignly by God is the Christ-likeness of God's people now and also the eternal blessedness of God's people in the world to come. God's working things together for our Christ-likeness and not for our comfort. And this is important because we so easily slip into thinking that following Jesus is supposed to make our lives easier or more comfortable now. And I'll be the first to tell you that Jesus has made my life much, much better. But he hasn't made my life easier. Following Jesus is hard. It's absolutely 100% worth it, but it's hard. 
And so we need to know that, we need to know what God has actually promised to us, like David does in his prayer here. And for that, we need to turn to the Word of God. And my friends, don't, don't wait until your next life crisis to turn to God's Word. Without regularly depositing the truth of Scripture into our souls, clinging on to the promises of God in, in the Scriptures, we're going to think spiritually. Knowing what God has promised to us as believers, like the back of our hand, helps us face the challenges of life in a fallen world. I know a member of our church, Iman, actually has all of Romans 8 memorized. And Romans 8 is a long and beautiful chapter. And he, he always points out to me that Romans 8 is actually like 98% encouragement and promise, gospel promises. There's only one actual command. And can you think of a similar way that you can know and internalize the promises of God and His Word? So we need to know the promises of God. We also need to believe the promises of God. Or we also need to believe the promises of God. And that's one that sounds so obvious, right? But we often forget, forget it, to believe the promises of God. In verse 27, David says he only has confidence because of what God has promised him. And for me, there's some promises that God makes in Scripture that I only have confidence to talk about because God has promised them. Like, some of God's promises sound just too good to be true. Like, that can't be what it's actually saying. One of those for me is Romans 8, 1. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I remember one time a couple years back, I met up with Adam Wilson for coffee. And we were done, I was like getting ready to leave for work, and he stopped me and said, Hey brother, before you leave, I just want you to know that there isn't anything you could do today that can make God love you any more than he already does. And there's nothing you could do today that could bring you back into condemnation. You're in Christ Jesus. And I think I said something like, yeah, wow, that's true. Thanks, man. See ya. And then I left. <laughs> but as I went through my day, there's this part of me that said to myself, that can't be true. But okay, what if I like really, really blow it though? And come on, do you really think God loves me just as much as all those super spiritual Christians? And you know, one of the most unsettling words in the English language is the word enough. I haven't been sharing the gospel enough, or praying enough, or helping the poor enough. I don't love my parents enough. I don't serve my spouse enough, or take care of my kids enough. And when it comes to the work of salvation, there's never a time where God looks at what we do and says, that's enough. The one thing David tried to do for God in this chapter was build him a temple. But God essentially said, David, your hands are covered in blood. Anything you build for me will be soaked in blood too. And I actually don't need anything from you at all. So I'm going to build something for you instead. So here's what you can do. Believe my promises. And don't get me wrong, David wasn't wrong to want to do something for God. Obedience to God is always essential for followers of Jesus, full stop. The catechism we read together today was right. The law of God requires our personal, perpetual, and perfect obedience. But Christians never obey to get God's acceptance. Christians obey God because we're already accepted by God in Christ. And there's never a time where grace is a valid excuse to disregard God's law. But only those who believe in the grace of God want to obey the law of God from their heart. 
And if you really believe and treasure the promises of God, you'll obey and you'll love the commands of God. So I love the place in John 6.49 where some people come to Jesus saying, so what does God want from us? Give us a list. Come on, we're ready to go, Jesus. And do you remember what Jesus says to them in response? He says, this is the work of God. Do you believe in him whom he has sent? Jesus is like, here's item number one on your spiritual to-do list. Believe in me. And Jesus says paradoxically that it's work to believe in him. And that's because what brings real change in our lives is not trying harder and being better. It's not sucking it up and getting our act together. No, what brings real change in our lives is actually believing the gospel. And I think so often we read scripture and we, we look for an immediate application, something we're supposed to go out and do. That's a good impulse. A lot of scripture has immediate application. And Christians aren't just supposed to be hearers of the word, we're also supposed to be doers of the word. But some places in scripture, like 2 Samuel 7, one of the main applications is just to believe the promises of God. So we need to know the promises of God, we need to really believe the promises of God, and last, we need to plead the promises of God. So praying that God will be faithful to fulfill his promises is basically what David does for half of this whole chapter. And one of the easiest ways that we can do what David did here is to pray through scripture. This has been personally really, really helpful for me. I find it helps, it helps me like my, stay focused when I'm praying, and it helps me to pray more for the things God cares about, not just my agenda. And it doesn't need to be like overly complicated. We learn to pray by praying. You can read a psalm or a proverb, meditate on it for a few minutes, and just pray. Or you can like go line by line through a passage like John 17 or Ephesians 3. So I love how in verse 18 and 19, David says that he was unworthy for God to do so much for him. But then he also says in the same breath that what God has done for him is a small thing. Like, which one is it, Dave? Is it a small thing or a big thing? And it's crazy how David can look back at all the prior events of First and Second Samuel, 20 years of slaying Goliath and toppling kingdoms by God's power. And he says that these are small things. Why? Look at the end of verse 19 where David says that the covenant promises God made to him are instruction for mankind. Now this is a, a difficult, tricky phrase to translate, but a lot of scholars like to render this phrase as a charter, charter for humanity. So David sees the covenant of grace God made with him. He sees that it has global, universal implications. It's a charter for humanity. And David sees how God has helped him out personally as really a tiny feat compared to God's promises to save and bless the nations through his royal messianic offspring. He knows that the kingdom of David is small potatoes to the kingdom of God. And our problem is that we're often the opposite of David, aren't we? What God does for us personally is all we really care about. What God does for mankind is an afterthought at best. And this makes me think of uh, a story from the British pastor John Stott. He recounts when he visited a church incognito. He went to their prayer meeting and he describes it like this. He says, The prayer was led by a lay brother because the pastor was on holiday. So we prayed that the pastor might have a good holiday. Well, that's fine. Pastors should have good holidays. Second, he prayed for a lady member of the church who was about to give birth to a child, that she might have a safe delivery, which is fine. Then he prayed for another lady who was sick, 
and then it was over. That's all there was. I said to myself, this is a village church with a village God. They have no interest in the world outside. There was no thinking about the poor, the oppressed, the refugees, the places of violence, and world evangelization. And he's right, friends. Too many of our prayers in the church today are too safe and too small. They're village prayers to a village God. And don't get me wrong. God cares about our personal needs, both physical and spiritual. And Jesus commanded us to pray for our daily bread. So pray for it. But don't let that be all you pray for. And as a church, what if we pray for things like the gospel to explode and churches to be planted among unreached people groups in places like India and Japan and Turkey? Or what if we pray that God would topple down systems, uh, unjust systems that oppress people of color in our country and our city? Or what if we pray that Christians would lead out in the adoption of orphans or caring for people who are homeless? Or how about we pray for a work of the Holy Spirit to bring gospel-centered revival in our church and in other churches in Baltimore? And what if we pray that in the next year that tens of thousands of people would come to faith in Jesus in Baltimore? So my personal favorite passage of Scripture to pray is the Lord's Prayer. Because it's awesome. But one of, the, one of the reasons I love it, though, also besides that, is that it helps protect me from praying village prayers to a village God. So I'm going to close the prayer in a minute, and I'm just going to pray through those petitions. I'll list them out and pray. And you can pray silently along with me. But real quick, I want you to know something about the Lord's Prayer. The pronouns are plural. It's not lead me not into temptation, but lead us not into temptation. Jesus didn't teach his disciples to pray only as isolated individuals, but together as a church family. And that's because there's nothing more terrifying to Satan than when God's people gather together to sit in his presence and boldly pray from their hearts for God to fulfill his kingdom promises. You know, there was a time in my Christian life where I was afraid to pray out loud in front of others. Maybe that's you. It's a really common occurrence among Christians. But we need to know that God doesn't hear us because we heap up religious-sounding words to him. He hears us because he's adopted us as his children by his grace. And God's pleasure in us as his covenant people is not based on our performance for him. His pleasure in us is based on Jesus' performance on our behalf. So we don't have to impress God, and we certainly don't have to impress one another. Prayer is not a performance, it's a privilege. So let's pray. Father, hallowed be your name. We pray that the name of Jesus would be glorified in this city. We pray that the name of Jesus would be exalted through this church. May we have no higher aim as a church than bringing glory to the name of Jesus. Your kingdom come. Father, we pray for a work of the Holy Spirit in this city. Transform the city, Lord. Make your kingdom come in Baltimore as it is in heaven. We want to see revival in churches in Baltimore. We want to see more and more people move from spiritual death to spiritual life in Jesus. And Father, we pray, give us each day our daily bread. Lord, we need your help to get through this week. We need your help. We need your strength, Lord. We can't do it without you. We pray that you would meet our physical and spiritual needs this week, Lord. Be with us. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. Father, forgive us for our coldness towards you and our prayerlessness, Lord. And forgive us for our unbelief in your gospel promises. 
Lord, I pray that we would not just know the doctrines of grace, but that we would really believe them at the core of our being. Help us to live them out with the grace and forgiveness we show one another in the church. And lead us not into temptation. Lord, protect us from the danger of living for our own little kingdom, not for the kingdom of God. We need you, Jesus. Help us to keep our eyes off ourselves and put our eyes on you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find another message or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.